only source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's scriptures in two places. Um, if you'll turn to Galatians 3:15, which is on page 973 in your Blue Pew Bible. It's 973, Galatians 3.15, and put your finger there and find uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 12, which is on page 943 in the Blue Pew Bible. So exactly 30 pages ahead. So we'll start reading in Romans. Romans 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And now move over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. We'll read 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thanks be to God.
certainly great to be back with you. We missed everybody so much uh, being gone <clears throat> these past uh, weeks. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had a, a good visit in uh, Nashville at General Assembly and a good visit with our families, and we appreciate your prayers uh, for us and, uh, and all of that. Now, we're, we're back in Romans chapter 6, and we actually will finish uh, 1 through 14 today. No applause. Um, we'll <laughs> and move on to verses 15 and following. And I want to focus on this one phrase and I, I, I'll tell you why we read Galatians in the, in the process. But this phrase, you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. <clears throat> now, it's so closely related to what is said before, and I hope that this uh, piques your interest in this phrase. He says, sin will not have dominion over you specifically because... You're not under law, but under grace. So this, is a, this really constitutes our hope that we can live free, more and more free of sin. This is our hope that we will not be slaves of sin. This one phrase, that we are not under law, but we are under grace. It's surprising how close this is to a phrase in Galatians chapter 5, where it says that you, uh, you are not, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so there's another contrast, not only <clears throat> under law versus under grace, under law versus led by the Spirit. So these two things will hopefully frame a little bit of our understanding of what Paul means here to say that we're not under law but under grace. The first thing I want to point out is that he is talking about major historical categories. Now, that really is interesting, isn't it? Uh, major historical categories. In other words, when he's talking about the law, he's, he means we are no longer under that system of the Mosaic law but we're under a new system that we can call grace, okay? We're not under a system that existed as Paul talked about in Galatians 3, where you had the promise of Abraham, then you had the law, but all along the law didn't displace promise and the promise kept waiting to be fulfilled. Finally, it's fulfilled in Christ. So that the law has this temporary provisional aspect in the Word. You get that feel from Galatians. Because there and here in Romans, Paul is very careful to say the law of Moses did not displace the promise that was in Abraham. And in Romans 4, he goes back to Abraham and says, how did Abraham come to know God? What was the process by which Abraham was made right with God? It was faith. It was grace. And again, in Galatians 3, he's, he's pushing the same thing, but then he really talks about it in a historical way of how the law followed the promise, but it only, it didn't oppose the promise, but in, in fact, it reinforced the promise because it more and more showed the need of the final promise of Christ. It was only a guardian to lead us to Christ. It was only this uh, uh Pedagogos, pedagogos, that was a guardian. Guardians were 
would, would attend a child to keep it separated and keep it protected. And so the law did that to usher us to Christ. So the temporary nature of this law. But what's interesting here is that it's associated with sin's dominion. And that's a strange thing, that this period of Mosaic law is associated with being under the dominion of sin. Now, this really flew in the face of what the, how the Jews understood the law because they felt like the law was what protected them from sin, what separated them from the sinful nations. And, of course, that made them, over time, feel more and more full of themselves and more and more prideful in their unique position, separate from the Gentiles, and they looked down their nose more and more the Gentiles and despised the Gentiles uh, in their position, as they saw it, of being protected against sin. But so much of what Paul says is that the law, far from protecting people from sin increased their sin. In fact, it created the conditions in which people fell under the dominion of sin more often than not. And that the very nature of we, our our flesh, being brought to sin means destruction and death. Let me just point out a few uh, aspects of this in, in point number two, when we get to self and the law. But I want to be sure we don't misunderstand, e- even though there's this talk about law and grace, that we don't misunderstand to think there is no commandment anymore. See, that we went from an era where there were commandments, now we left the era of commandments, and now we're just in an era of grace. And there was no grace, a graciousness from God in that old era, But now suddenly, grace has come on the scene, okay? I want to be sure that you don't misunderstand to say that law means that, uh, you know, that this law and grace are, are telling you that there was only law and now there's only grace. This is just a major, you might say, label that Paul has, a category, a kind of definition uh, of that period, that of Mosaic law now of grace. You catch this in John chapter 1 when John actually says that through Moses, this is uh, John chapter 1 verse 17, he says... The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that Jesus never gave a command? No, no, it's not talking about that. Does that mean there was no grace and no truth in the Old Testament? No, but it's saying that the Old Testament was marked by this giving of the Mosaic law, and it was given through this mediator, Moses, But grace was fulfilled in its richness and completeness through Jesus Christ. And truth there actually means the reality. It's like the full reality of God's saving work burst forth in Jesus Christ. But there again, 
John's saying the old age was marked by this Mosaic law. The new age is marked by the fulfillment of grace breaking out in a whole new way and the full reality of God's salvation that was awaited ever since Abraham when it was promised has now finally come. And so the promise of Abraham that there would be a seed and between was interspersed by this Mosaic law has now come. The seed has come, the fulfillment. Now we're not under that law, but we're under grace. Of course, now we can't, it's not as though there are no commands, no exhortations, no warnings. His letters, Paul's letters are full of commands. Uh, that would be to say that the New Testament is commandless. You know, Well, that's just not the case. It's just not the case. As though there are no rules, no standards, no values, no principles, really no right or wrong. You see, that's not what he's talking about. There's no more law anymore. Let's go do whatever you want to. Uh, so it's just a historical definition or a category. Uh, a case can be made that there's a different emphasis perhaps within the commands of God. Uh, love comes to the forefront in a way that it wasn't in the Old Testament, but it wasn't absent from the Old Testament. And there are huge changes such as the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws, but we must never say that law or commandment as a principle is, is gone. Uh, the Old Testament is rich with commands and instruction and the New Testament is rich. And of course, we must not say there's no grace in the Old Testament. God's own personal shorthand bio was, as he sets forth in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's his basic shorthand bio that you see in the history sections, in the poetry sections, in the prophecy sections. This is who God is. This is what God is. This is how he announces himself when, when uh, Moses says, show me your glory. He passes before him and declares words like that. This is who I am. His dealing with Abraham was sheer grace and mercy and kindness. Even the preface to the Ten Commandments, as we have seen, is that God has redeemed them. It's all of grace and, and mercy. And of course, it's not as though you get to the New Person and somebody, the New Testament and somebody says, God is gracious? What? You know, I never heard of that. Never imagined that God would be gracious. Wow, this is a whole new world, you know. So it's not law and grace in that sense. But it's characterized by law and characterized by a new outpouring of grace. And of course, if you attach it to the person of Jesus Christ, you can see how that would be the case. As Calvin points out, Christ is there in the Old Testament, but he's in dark shadows. Hard to see, hard to get hold of, you know. That grace is not as apparent. It's not as visible. Think of just the difference in Mount Sinai and the incarnation. You know, the approach of God there and the distance of people. And then suddenly he is enfleshed and you're walking around with God. There's a little bit of feel, you see, for that historical time marked by law, not absent of grace, but it can't be compared to this graciousness, this mind-blowing presence of God that's not just in a tabernacle or temple, but in human flesh. And that's why we say the law was given through Moses, but oh, grace 
and the reality of God's saving person, it came through Jesus Christ in Him. He is that grace and truth. And so uh, let's be sure then as we think about these historical categories what they are not, okay? Now, secondly though, we need to see that within that history of the dominance of Mosaic law, when a human being comes to that law, you might say, in his own strength, the results are devastating. And as several commentators have pointed out, Paul, in a special way, is talking, though he knows that there are plenty of exceptions. There is, you know, a section of the Jews that do trust in God, that are resting in His mercy. They're characterized by a spiritless approach to law and an abuse of that law, and so deadly results uh, came. So he's looking at it in one way, emphasizing the general course of uh, the, the Jews' life with the law. And, of course, now that the pouring out of the Spirit has occurred, there's such a different widespread engagement with the mercy of God that even the Jews themselves did not have. But look, looking at the law from that standpoint, what is shocking is to see that law and sin are coupled in Paul's teaching. Now, that doesn't seem right because the law is pure and spiritual. Look in chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law that you may belong to another. In verse 6, We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So, what's, what's really hard sometimes is when you read a passage like Psalm 1 or Psalm 119, and it talks about the blessedness of the law, the blessedness of obeying the law. The fruitfulness. You're like a tree planted by streams of water. The person that delights in God's law. And you think, how can I associate Psalm 1 or Psalm 119 that talks about the blessedness of obeying the law with these verses that talk about, gosh, now we're set free from the law. We are set free from the captivity that we had to the law. Well, hopefully these little phrases of Paul's like, under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. That is the law that is just the law and me apart from the Spirit. The law and my self-effort, which so often marked the Jewish tendency. That's why at the end of chapter 2, Paul can say in verse 28... No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. See that again, letter and Spirit. Just the law, the letter of it, apart from the Spirit, and me and that letter, me and that law trying to have it out. Let me give you one more portion of Scripture just so you can 
compare these things. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul even calls the Mosaic Covenant as a ministry of death. A ministry of death because of the association of sin and law. He says here in uh, verse 6, He's made us competent, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, He's made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So there's this huge contrast in the era of the law marked by flesh and law coming together, our own human weakness coming into contact with the law, and the new era of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now look in, uh, if you will, now that we're on page 943, we look uh, with me at what Paul says there about the law and uh, ourself. Verse 7. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Here's, here's what someone might say. That the law is sin? Does that mean the law is sin? If, if it brings about such sin, is that the problem? The issue is the law? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So it's not that the law is, uh, that there's anything wrong with the law. The problem is me. If you and the law, let's say, are in a cage together, it's like a five-year-old child and a gorilla, okay? The child is going to get killed. And that's the way it is with us in the law. Uh, if you're in a cage with a Bengal tiger, no contest, you're dead. But because it's not because the law is bad or vicious. It's good and holy. We destroy ourselves on that which is good. We ruin ourselves with that which is perfect and good. Our weakness is exposed by this law. The difference between the law and us is made clear. Our corruption is revealed. The wonderful, gracious, wise command that the law has, as Jesus summarized it, for us to love God and to love others, it races on ahead of us. I remember when I was in a navigator program way back in the early 70s. That's how old I was. I am. Um, but I was in a navigator program. It's a summer program, and we worked construction during the day, and we studied the Bible at night. Well, I got up one morning with these two guys and said, would you like to go jogging tomorrow? I said, sure, let's, let's go. I wasn't, I played a lot of sports and 
in high school and junior high, but I didn't run much. You know, I ran as little as possible. That's why I was a pitcher. You know, I just didn't have to run much. I was just pitched, just threw the ball. Um, but we got out there and we started off the first block and I started laughing because I thought they were kidding because they were sprinting. I mean, and I was like, I thought we were running five miles. And they said, we are. You know? I mean, in no, in a hundred, two hundred yards, they were gone. Just took off, you know, like that, away from me. I couldn't believe how fast. I thought, surely they are running like a hundred yard sprint. We're all going to sit there and say, gosh, that was fast. No, they ran five miles that way. I just couldn't believe it. But it showed, it showed how pathetic I am. Okay. It revealed to me how pathetic I was. It showed what I was and am. And that's the function of the law. As Paul said earlier in chapter 3, the law, even to those under the law, it speaks so that every mouth can be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Or later, that was in chapter uh, 3, verses uh, 19 and uh, just verse 19. And then look at chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And like Paul said that in, in Galatians 3, that the Scriptures kept us under sin that whole time. The law convinced us of sin. And so the law seeks the highest, most wonderful, blessed relationship between us and God and between one another. But you've seen this sadly at some horse races. A horse just stumbles right out of the gate and he's just out of the race. That's us. And this most glorious call to enter into the most intimate relationship with God and the most glorious love with one another, we fall flat on our face almost immediately. We're nowhere close to that kind of love. We can't even imagine that kind of love. We've never received that kind of love from someone else. We're so distant from that as the law comes to us. Imagine if most of us were going to run in the final Olympic 1,600-meter race. You know, imagine all those excellent runners in the top possible conditioning for a human being. Cindy wouldn't do too bad, but most of us would be pretty pathetic out there. And there's nothing wrong with the runners, of course. Nothing wrong with those Olympic runners. The problem is me slogging and puffling and puffing and waddling around the track. And, and you know, as long as I was sitting in the stands, I was fine. You couldn't tell I'm 30 pounds overweight. You wouldn't know how much I would shake when I run. You wouldn't know how I would get red in the face after 100 yards. You wouldn't know that my knees would give away like that. You wouldn't know that I wheezed so loudly. You wouldn't know I was so pathetically, uh, physically, until I got out there. And that's what the law does to us. It shows us what we're not. It reveals. And then, as Paul says in Romans 7, it not only reveals our sin, but when we, it, it, it makes clear that our transgression is against God. It makes it just not just isolated, I'm doing wrong, but I specifically am disobeying God's will, His law. And the more I hear it, the more I resist it, the more I want to turn away from it, the more it shows just what is inside of me. 
And so, that which comes and is life and is glorious and is beautiful and it's calling me to the most noble things and I get worse because of it. And so, in that context, you see, Paul is saying that sin will not have, it will have no dominion over you because you are not under law. You have been cut loose of that treadmill. It's interesting how Paul puts it, and and you can see that he, he deals with this over and over in Romans and Galatians and other places. But in Romans 8, he says, the law of the spirit of life The Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law can tell you and it can hold up before you the most glorious standard, the most beautiful thing of a relationship with God and others. But it can't change you. It can't transform you. It can't renew you. It can't resurrect you. It just points out how bad you and I are. And God, as we see in Galatians, He he really prepared for this a a long time. Uh, and, And that strikes us as a bit hard, perhaps. Why so long under the law? Why so much proof? of our weakness and sinfulness. I mean, (laughs) you know, I tend to think, Lord, why not a lot earlier bring Christ on the scene than all of this constant proof, learning and learning and learning and multiplying sad examples over centuries. But apparently God was going to show inescapable conclusions, exhaustive field testing of what is in mankind. The need for a slam dunk proof, you could say that mankind is helpless and needs a redeemer. A watertight case with no leaks, open, public, meticulous, comprehensive demonstration. Under any and all circumstances, it's God's vindication that yes, He had to send His only begotten Son to save. There was no other hope, no other way but the sending of His own Son to be our Redeemer. Grace and truth came. The reality of salvation, the reality of a release from sin's dominion comes only in the person of Jesus Christ. None in creation seeing the appalling, horrible gift of Jesus Christ or the appalling uh, destruction of Christ on the cross could say, wait a minute, God, why didn't you just try X or Y? Why couldn't you this have worked? Did you ever think about the possibility of... No. You run to a man's house, you hear repeated gunshots. You come into the house and you see several destroyed items due to the gunfire. And you say, what in the world happened? And the guy says, it was a spider. And of course you're thinking, you think you might could have used a rolled up newspaper or maybe a little bug spray, you know. Until he takes you in the back room and he shows you the spider and it's five feet across. It's my illustration. I make him as big as I want. Okay. Uh, 
this giant spider. And you're like, I would be like, you know, if I had a grenade, I'd blow up the spider and me and the whole house to get away from that thing. I choose my death, you know, not the spider. You see what all of these centuries really of man's struggle under sin and the law proved that God's giving of his own son, this amazing expenditure, we talked about it in our Sunday school class, this extravagant, this reckless extravagance. Spending everything that he has. That's why Keller entitles his book, The Prodigal God. The Prodigal God who spends himself lavishly for his people. And, dear friends, that was to bring grace into your life. Grace. Favor. And and, and grace isn't simply favor, that is, as 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 a principle... Uh, it's, it's favor that has to do with God's saving power. That's what grace talks about. Under law, life is determined by the resources of law, okay? Law has no resources for your change. But now, under grace, grace has all the resources, redeeming, renewing, all-powerful grace. Under God's powerful grace, under His sovereign favor, grace is acting favor, delivering favor. Murray says, grace is the sovereign will and power of God coming to expression for the deliverance of men from the servitude of sin. That's His grace. It's God in all of His power coming to your rescue and acting on your behalf to set you free. And that's why Jesus says, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And so you and I have the great privilege, as Paul says, sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under law. We're not in that period now, you, you can choose to live that way. You can choose to try to make your, fix yourself to get to God. You can set standards that, by which you look down your nose at other people. And that's why grace must be brought into every relationship. Grace must be brought into your marriage. Grace must be brought into your parenting. Grace must be brought into your work. Grace has to has to condition everything you do. People conditioned by law are not known as being humble, kind-hearted, gracious, patient. They're not known as being self-sacrificing. They're known as being hard to be around, critical, demeaning, mocking, sullen, angry, requiring so much around them, always asking the question, what are people doing for me or not doing for me, rather than how might I spend myself for my wife, my children, my husband, as Christ has spent himself for me. Grace. And as Hodge and many others have pointed out, an aspect of this is is the forgiveness of grace. That there is no change in us There's really no change unless we know that we can come into the presence of God just as we are with all of our sin 
and that Christ Jesus, through His death and resurrection, completely removes our sin before God. We are made perfect in His sight and joined to Christ, united to Him. We have the same acceptance as Jesus does. That's the glory of being united to Christ, of taking Christ to yourself, of trusting in Him, because then you're joined to Him. You have His the favor He has of God, you get to have that favor. And it never leaves you. And it conditions every day of your life. You're under God's favor because you're joined to Jesus. It has nothing to do ultimately with how you've performed or not performed. It has to do with your trust in Christ and Christ's mighty power setting you free more and more from the bonds that have held you. And we all have incredible bonds in sin. We all have hurts and pains that have wrapped themselves around us and we've coped with those and developed different idols and systems for managing our life so that we're running the show ourselves instead of helplessly falling before God and saying, in the word, you've heard me say it so many times. Save me. Save me, Lord. Continue to save me. Keep saving me. Keep rescuing me, Lord. Keep transforming me. You're my only hope. But you're a sure hope. That's something of what it is. That we are no longer under law, but under grace. Praise be to God. Sin will not have dominion over you. Let us pray. Lord, we rest in your great work through Jesus Christ. We rest in this glory that the reality of salvation has appeared in Christ Jesus. Lord, your unlimited passion to save is clearly displayed in the death and resurrection of Christ. Grip us, Lord. Draw us to yourself. Keep us from self, from a focus on our own strength, from a focus on our own capacity, or focus on proving ourselves, and focus on protecting ourselves, a focus on accomplishment apart from you. No, oh Lord, make us children that rest in our Father's love, that rest in the favor that we can have through Jesus Christ that rest in the mighty power of God that will set us free continually from sin's dominion. We are no longer under law, but under grace. We are under a new Lord, not sin, but Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Full rain, break radiant through the
the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?